Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we were supposed, where we were suppo where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had this, a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Doesn't it feel like we've gone back to winter? It's raining and cold outside and we're watching ice hockey. What's that? What's that with June? Come on. I'm used to that coming from my country, but here, mm, it's a little unusual. I hope you are all well this morning. I wanted to start um, by just reading a little quote to you. This is from a devotional um, by, written by a man, not that, no, that, that's it. Um, this is from a, a little devotional that I uh, love, actually, is written by a man called Henry Nguyen. He was a Catholic priest and a great thinker, and I, I love having... So, you know, uh, devotionals around the house. For those moments where, I don't know, I just feel a little bit iffy about what I'm doing. You know, you go into these little dips. 
I know it might sound slightly odd, a man wearing a collar, to say, you know, on the journey of faith, it's not all highs, right? There are times when you feel a little dry or you wonder whether you're doing the right thing. And at those moments, I love having a devotional handy. And I was experiencing one of those moments just last week. And I read this in this devotional. It's called, You Are the Beloved. Do you know that this morning, that you are the Beloved? And this is what Nguyen says. Prayer and action can never be seen as contradictory or mutually exclusive. Prayer without action grows, doesn't stay static, it grows into powerless pietism. Ouch. And action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation. Equally, ouch. Prayer and action, Nguyen seems to say, need to belong together if this faith that we are living out is to have power and not to generate, degenerate into some sort of powerlessness or worse, some form of manipulation. And that really spoke to me and about what I do and how much of my time is spent in prayer, but prayer that is followed by actually doing something, prayer and action together. But it also spoke to me about the book of Acts, because Acts, by its very name, is about action. It's about prayer and action together. So I want to spend a few minutes this morning looking at that connection between prayer and action and what it leads to, because what it leads to is kingdom and the transformation of lives. The longer I have gone on in faith, the more I long to see actual transformation in people's lives. So I want to spend a little time just thinking about that kind of matrix, prayer, action, and the transformation of life, looking through uh, the lens of the book of Acts. Would you pray with me, and then we'll have a look at our passage. Father, this morning, on this cold winter summer morning, would you wake our hearts up to hear your words, to understand you a little more deeply, to hear what it is you have to say to us by your Spirit, by your Word, this morning. Bless us with your presence. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts 16. Acts 16 is a pivotal moment in the history of the church. It marks the beginning of Paul's second great missionary journey. And it marks the point into wh uh, at which the gospel moves into Europe. You know that strange place on the planet of Earth that you guys in America are not entirely sure about. Europeans, right? But this is the moment that the gospel penetrates into Europe. And that's, if you think about the history of the church, good and bad, the moment that the gospel moves into Europe is incredibly significant because it is essentially through Europe that the gospel will then spread over the coming centuries to the rest of the world. 
So this is a significant moment. And at this significant moment, we're introduced to Timothy. You know Timothy? It's Timothy of whom, uh, you know, the letter is written to Timothy. This is that Timothy. And we're introduced to him at a, at a it's not a, a sort of random introduction. This introduction comes at a specific point because of who Timothy was. And this is what we read. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. By the way, who is it who read that scripture? That was fantastic. You got all the names perfect. The great secret when reading scriptures, when the names are sort of weird, is just don't worry about it. If you pronounce it the way you think, everybody else will say, wow, they really know what they're talking about. But Paul came to Derby and to Lystra, forgive me if I'm pronouncing them differently. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy's mum was Jewish, but his dad was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, why is it significant that Timothy's mom was Jewish and his father was Greek, a Gentile? Because this is the very moment at which the church was wrestling with one of its great actions in the world, which was to make one people of Jew and Gentile. So Timothy, in himself, kind of embodied this moment in the church's history. And in fact, the chapter before in Acts 15 is all about how the church wrestled with what it would look like to become one people. Think civil rights. This is as big a moment. The Jews and Gentiles were incredibly opposed to each other. And here is the church saying, no, this is the direction that God is leading us as a church to become one people. And a little bit further on in Acts 16.4, we read this. As they, that is Paul and his companions, went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. There was this council in Jerusalem, and they said, should we be one people? Are we going to do this, or are we not? And the answer was, yes. We're going to do this. And Paul, later in his uh, letter to the Galatian church, said this, there is neither Jew in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. This is one of the great first actions of the church. It's an incredibly, forgive me for using the word if this offends you, progressive action. It is progressive socially to make one people out of divided ethnic identities. And what it really spoke to me is this. There really shouldn't be among us, as people of faith, if that's what you are, if you are following Christ, there really shouldn't be much confusion about what the action of the church in the world should look like. It's really not very complicated, and it is set out for us very plainly in Scripture. 
When we think of what the witness, if you will, into the world of the church should be, we don't need to get confused. We read from Isaiah 61, which is the passage that Jesus, you might remember, quoted at the beginning of his ministry. And in Isaiah, he speaks about freedom. That should be something dear to our hearts. Freedom from all the kinds of things that enslave human beings. Wherever you see something that is enslaving another human being, we should know what our action is. The direction of it is to free them from whatever that slavery is. It speaks about good news to the poor, the broken, about justice of all kinds, economic, social. And here we hear that the direction of the action of the gospel is to make one people of all ethnic identities. There's no confusion. There's no what are we supposed to do. So a little later in this passage, when Paul is talking to a rich businesswoman who we're going to be introduced to in a little while, a woman called Lydia, and then after her we hear about a slave girl, the gospel that Paul is preaching to them is not simply a gospel of justification by faith, forgiveness of sins, though it is that. It's not just that. It is the Lordship of Christ that he is preaching. I was in Rome just last week. We have a picture of the Colosseum. That's the Colosseum. Have you ever been there? It's a pretty astounding building. Sort of first century AD, somewhere around there. You know, thumbs up, thumbs down, all that kind of stuff. Thumbs up, you live. Thumbs down, you don't. Actually, they're not sure that that's exactly the way it worked. But anyway, something like that. And as I was sort of going around this building and listening to the guide and he was talking about it, what I came to understand is that this Colosseum was not just a place to indulge ourselves in watching a little ritual slaughter for the sake of it. The Colosseum was a demonstration to its own people of Rome's power. If you wanted to understand Rome, you went to the Colosseum to see how Rome was powerful. And you would see that in Rome demonstrating its power over the natural world. So there would be beasts, lions, bears, elephants even, that would come up out of the floor. That floor is only partial. You can see slightly underneath it. They would raise these beasts out, and then they would kill these animals from all over the world. What was that saying? It's saying, look, Rome is powerful over the natural world. And then there would be people from all over the world who would come up out of the floor in little lifts. They had 80 lifts that lifted people up. They would pop up out of the floor in this Colosseum. Quite extraordinary. And then those people would be killed, demonstrating Rome's authority and power over the people of the world. So this was a piece of elaborate theater designed to demonstrate to people of the time, Rome is powerful over nature, Rome is powerful over people. And it's in the face of that power that the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. No, there is another Lord who is Lord of nature and Lord of all. It's not a passive proclamation. 
It is an active claim that leads to action in the world. So you might say, well, I get that, man. But here's the thing. You and I could point to lots of attempts to do the right thing in the world or do the Christian thing that have led to questionable results. And it's very ironic that when you walk into the Colosseum, the first thing you actually see is a great cross. For a long time, for centuries, after Rome became Christianized, they put a cross in the Colosseum. And as I walked in, that's more or less the first thing you think. I thought it was a terrific irony about that. Because yes, of course, that cross could mark the redemption of what happened in the Colosseum, the slaughter, the blood. But on the other hand, it could be a kind of way of saying what Rome did now in the name of Caesar, now we, the Christians, will do in the name of Christ. We will become the powerful ones. We will become the ones who manipulate the world in order to achieve God's ends. And if I left a big pause or silence now, you could possibly or probably think of things that you have seen where the right thing has been done in the wrong way with bloody results. Power always leads to manipulation. Many years ago, I went to see a, um, a counselor. She was a Catholic nun, a, wom a woman called Hildegard Weinrich. She was German, and she was a Catholic nun, but she did secular counseling. And at one point in this counseling, um, I was quite young, I was about 21 years old, she said to me, Matt, um, what, what is the opposite of love? And I went, well, duh, hate, of course, right? You're nodding your heads. And she said, no, Matthew, hate is not the opposite of love. You cannot love if you do not hate. You cannot love your child if you do not hate what hurts your child, right? You cannot love good if you don't hate evil. Love and hate are not opposites. The opposite of love is manipulation. You cannot love that that you attempt to manipulate. You cannot love the one over whom you attempt to exert power. That's the opposite of love. And in the book of Acts, we see that these actions, this direction of the gospel, which is not in question, there's no what does it look like or what should it be, always comes not as a self-produced, self-directed thing, but as a response to prayer. And you get this incredible interdependence of action and prayer together all the time. It's not just action, it's prayer action or action prayer. And back in chapter 15, we're not going to look at it, in the Council of Jerusalem, you get this huge decision about becoming one people, Gentile and Jew. And it has this lovely phrase right in the heart of it, we just bring that up. When they're talking about this, this is a council of people talking about what should we do. And they say this, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Isn't that extraordinary? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This council, as they were talking about it, they were listening to God and saying, is this right, God? Is this what we're supposed to do? Jew and Gentile, one people. And then we see it again in Paul's Macedonian moment. 
It's a great study in what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God. And this is what it says in verse 6. And they, that's Paul and his companions, went through the region, region of Phrygia and Galatia. And having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, what? To speak the word in Asia. What happened? That they were forbidden? Was it the authorities there who said you can't do that? And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, something happened that they were prevented or forbidden from preaching. And then in verse 8, you get the opposite. So you get two don'ts, and then you get a conviction ado. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia. That's in Greece. And help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you get this sense that as Paul is proclaiming this lordship, the lordship, the action of God into the world, not how we get to heaven, but what God is doing in the world through Christ, that you get this incredible dependence on the Spirit, on listening to God. I was reading about Jeff Bezos. You know Jeff Bezos? Mr. Amazon? Come on, they might be coming here. We need to know who this guy is. And it was really talking about how Jeff Bezos had been infuriating to his investors. Because he kept changing his mind and doing things that didn't make any profit and you know, didn't look like it was the thing that he said he was going to do. And basically Jeff Bezos said, says, look, no, the vision is unchanging. There's a very simple vision that he pursues. It's basically get product to people cheaply or something like that. That's it. That's the vision. That never changes. The vision is the thing that is unchanging. But given that unchanging thing, I have total freedom to be as agile as I like and shift and change because of the unchanging vision. And it seems to me that is the great challenge for us as the church, is the vision is unchanging. We know what it is. It doesn't change. It's the kingdom coming on earth. That's not going to shift. But within that, somehow we have to develop the capacity to remain agile, to be responsive to what God is doing. This is not our task. This is God's task. It's not something we force into being. And when you get this incredible kind of conjunction of prayer and action, action and prayer, what is the result? Well, we read about it. Let me introduce you to Lydia. There she is. Of course, that might not be Lydia. I don't know what she looked like. It's an icon. She was probably a foreigner where she lived. Her name, Lydia, might mean that she was from Lydia. Luke indicates that she was originally from Thyatira, a city in a place called Lydia. There's speculation that she might have been originally a slave, but when we meet her, Lydia was a seller of purple. She was Jeff Bezos. She was a businesswoman who sold luxury textile, dyed purple. That was the most, you only sold dyed purple to the really wealthy. Purple was the most expensive cloth you could buy. 
And we read this. On the Sabbath day, we, interesting that the language changed, before it was they in Acts, now it's we. Luke has presumably joined them on this missionary journey. Went outside the gates to the riverside, where we were supposed, well, we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So we know Lydia was a God-fearer. She was probably a Gentile convert to Judaism, but she'd never heard of the Lordship of Jesus. She'd not yet heard of the action that God had taken and was taken, was taking through Christ in the world. But the Lord opened her heart. And after that, we read, she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us saying, urged us, that's Paul and his companions, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia was wealthy. She owned her own home. And that house was big enough to welcome Paul and his traveling companions and that was the beginning of the church in Philippi, to whom the letter of Philippians was written. It started out of this incredible conjunction of prayer and action. Not just prayer, not just action, but prayer and action together, leading to the transformation of life that led to church. It's the best church growth strategy. It's the only church growth strategy we ever really need. Prayer, action, kingdom. We'll get the church. And then we hear about an actual slave girl. So we've gone from a very wealthy woman to a slave girl. And we read in uh, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl now who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Salvation here. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I love that. She really bugged Paul. She's following him around for days on end. And finally, Paul is moved into action he turns and says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. And I wonder if that slave girl joined Lydia's house church. It's speculation, I don't know. But I like to think that she did. Prayer, action, transformation of life. Learning to be agile within the unchanging vision. A vision of the gospel never changes. It's unchanging, but somehow we have to develop and maintain this ability to be agile within it, to respond to what the Spirit is saying. If we will do that, we will see transformation of life. If we see transformation of life, we will see the church grow. And if, like me, you ever experience a moment where you feel your faith is dry, I could bet with you, I bet's not a good thing, is it? No. I could suggest to you that if we were to sit down and have a coffee and think about those three things, prayer, action, seeing transformation of life, one or two or even three of those things would be missing. And you might say, well, I pray and I come to church, but where's the action? 
What am, what am I being compelled to by the Spirit so that I can see transformation of life? Let me just finish with that quote again. Prayer and action can never be seen as contradictory or mutually exclusive. Prayer without action grows over time into powerless pietism. And action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation. And neither, I would add, on its own will bring the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know what it is you ask of us. You've made it very plain to us. In your scriptures, we read the direction of your action into the earth, your kingdom. Father, would you keep us awake and agile, responsive to your spirit, so that we can be led into the things of your kingdom and see the transformation of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.